all stand together at this time as we consider the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. May God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. We're looking at a series of the Old Testament patriarch, Abraham, the one that God calls the father of all who believe. We have seen Abraham going without knowing. We've seen him enduring that famine in the promised land, facing a faith test that he, like we so often do, failed. But he's gone back to Bethel, and we see it again and again. I just I love to say it. Never underestimate the power of a believer making the decision to get back to the house of God. Back to Bethel. He knew that's where he belonged. And now Abram's walking in victory, and we saw that in his personal world. We saw it last week in the great victory that he won over the kings of the east who had come against them. And now, now we're going to see him experiencing that victory in the spiritual realm. You see, he had chased down invading armies. He had conquered uh, those uh, people who had conquered the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had won that victory against incredible odds. But now there's another battle. It's in the spiritual realm. And we're going to see that play out. It's what one preacher called the battle after the battle. Or the battle behind the battle. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11, Paul said this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now we know that Abraham had done battle with these rival kings. And their armies. He had won a great victory against real life flesh and blood soldiers. But now there's another battle. Paul, it's the one Paul was describing when he said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Because, you see, our difficulties in life almost always have somebody's name on it. It's somebody that's given me a problem. It's a boss, somebody I work with, a a teacher or a classmate. Sometimes it's in our own home. It's a a spouse, a husband, or a wife. Maybe your in-laws. I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, our our enemies in this world, people we're having conflict with, have somebody's name on it. And and we think, you know, if it wasn't for this, everything would be all right. If I could just get past this, then it would all be fine. But, But Paul gives us a great principle when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. What a great principle that is. People are not our enemy. We don't fight them, we fight for them. What we must remind ourselves is that person sometimes who's coming against us is being used and manipulated, maybe without even knowing it, by a spiritual enemy. And that enemy is my enemy, but that enemy is also their enemy, but he doesn't mind using them and exploiting them. And the fact is that his goal in both of our lives is the same. He wants to destroy us both. 
And he will use both of us to destroy each other. That's why there's a spiritual battle, a real battle, that goes on behind the scenes. We don't always recognize it. But this morning we're going to see that great passage where God brings it to the forefront. Abraham goes out and wins a mighty victory against those kings. But the real significant victory is yet to come. We can learn then that winning a battle doesn't mean we've won the war. It doesn't mean that our enemy is going to leave us alone. In fact, when we win one victory in the vast kingdom conflict, it's very likely that he's just going to launch a counterattack and be even more determined to bring it against us. In a very real way then, our victories make us vulnerable. Sometimes that's very obvious to us. As it seems like the enemy has mounted up his horses and comes riding, charging against us. And we recognize it. We see what it is. We, we see the dust coming and hear the thunder of the hooves. And we know that the enemy's coming. But he's just as likely to slither into our world very silently, very subtly. Coming not as a soldier, maybe, but as a salesman with a very tempting and enticing offer. He's good at what he does. After all, the enemy is an eternal being. We mere mortals that we are just have our three score and ten. And he faces one generation after another generation after another generation with the same weaknesses. All of us subject to the same temptations. He's good at what he does. The battle after the battle. We'll see this this morning in a couple of ways, how this battle after the battle in Abraham's life plays out, and it's one that we all need to pay attention to. The first way it shows itself is, of course, that Abraham had a choice to make. When he returned from winning this mighty victory, he was met by two kings. Here it is, verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedeleomor and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. Two kings. One was the king of Sodom. The other was the king of Salem. Sodom means burning, burning. And Salem means peace. In Hebrew, the word for city is the word Yeru, Jeru, as we would say. So Jeru, Shalom, was the city of peace. That's where Melchizedek was king. So it's kind of ironic that that's called the city of peace since more wars have been fought over it than perhaps any other place on the planet That's how good the enemy is. Let God call a place a city of peace and he'll make sure it's a place of war. He hates the peace. He does everything he can to destroy it. But the choice, uh, the battle that he was going to have to make at this point in time was really simple. It was a battle now over who was going to reign in Abraham's life or which king he was going to bow down to. The fact is that we can only bow down and serve to one king at a time. 
If we serve one king, we're going to rebel against the other. If we serve the other king, we'll rebel against the other. Jesus himself said it. No man can serve two masters. We can only bow to one king at a time. The significance of this choice then is shown in the identity of the kings themselves. The king of Sodom was known as Barah. His name means son of evil. Son of evil. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And his name is explained to us in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So we've got the king whose name means the son of evil. And then we have the man, the king, whose name means the king of righteousness or the king of peace. Melchizedek comes bursting out of the shadows of antiquity for this meeting with Abraham and then disappears back into biblical ambiguity. We don't know where he came from. That's what the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know what his background was. We don't know what his genealogy was. We don't know what tribe he was from. There was no tribe. We don't know where he came from. There is no other record of him ever meeting with Abraham again. And in fact, it would be almost a thousand years later when God would reveal the significance of this meeting through David. Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn, he said, and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It would be then another thousand years. Before the writer of the book of Hebrews would explain a little bit about what was going on. You see, Melchizedek is presented as both a king and a priest. And in the economy of Israel, that presented a problem. The tribe of Judah, you see, was the kingly tribe. The descendants of David, the tribe of Judah. All the kings were to be of the tribe of Judah. But of course, the tribe of Judah could not be priest. They could be a king, but they could not be a priest. The tribe of Levi became the priestly tribe. And the tribe of Levi could not be kings. And so the promise that God had made concerning the Messiah, that he would be both king and priest, was a mystery. How could such a thing be? It would not fit with what they knew about the tribe of Judah. It would not fit with what they knew about the tribe of Levi. The Messiah will be both king and priest. Well, God dealt with that by saying in Psalm 110 and verse 4 that he would be a priest not for just a little while, but a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, the priest of Aaron's order could only serve for 20 years between the age of 30 and 50. Then that was it. 
But Jesus, you see, because he's made a priest after the order of Melchizedek then, could be a priest forever. And that's exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. What a great passage. Therefore he, that's Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But it's simply because Jesus can be a priest forever, that means we can be saved forever. Isn't that good news? And so this is no small potato thing kind of uh, idea that's going on. Some just am, uh, something uh, ambiguous, something passed on in antiquity, just something that doesn't matter much. No, Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek has tremendous biblical significance. It's a, a very critical and crucial times. When Abraham met with Melchizedek that day, he was meeting with a man who represented the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. He was one made like unto the Son of God, the priest of the Most High God, and, and displaying then his glorious purpose of eternal redemption. Abraham then had a meeting with the King of Righteousness, Melchizedek. But he also met Barah, the King of Sodom. If Melchizedek represented the Son of God, and he does because the Bible says so, we're not going to have to worry very long about what uh, Barah uh, uh, represented as the son of evil. Now, we're struggling against spiritual wickedness in high places, and evil was firmly in control of the city of Sodom. You see, Abraham had fought Kedor Laomar and his eastern alliance and won a great and decisive victory but now he finds himself facing another foe. Barah, the king of Sodom. There's only one true king. There are multitudes, though, of counterfeit kings vying for his place. The place of the one true king in your life and mine. In the big picture, you see, it would do Abraham no good to defeat one evil king, only to bow to another. And that plays out sometimes in the lives of people. And you've seen it, and I've seen it. It's the person maybe who fights his addiction to alcohol, only replace that with an addiction uh, to some form of drugs. It's, it, it, it's that person who gets out of one terrible, abusive relationship, only to get right back into another one, just like it. It's that person who digs their way out of financial debt only to make more bad choices, bad decisions, and jump right back into it again. See, to do Abraham no good to defeat one king, only to bow to another. And so after that battle, Abraham's faced with a choice. He has to choose which king he's going to serve. And that shows up in their identity, who they were. One is the king of righteousness. One is the son of evil. The significance of the battle then is also shown in the method that the kings used. The king of Salem came out to give. Look at it, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, any of us in this building this morning could shout amen if we had a shout in us. To the fact that our first meeting with Jesus Christ was based on what he's given to us. You see, Jesus comes offering to give. Give us the greatest gift of all. 
eternal life, salvation, sins forgiven, eternal relationship with God. Heaven is our home. Jesus comes out to give. And he offers us that incredible gift. But the king of evil, on the other hand, comes out to take. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons. Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. We can put this down in our programs, friend. Program it on our hard drive. Bring it up often. The king of righteousness will always be the giver. And the son of evil will always be the taker. Always. Always. Melchizedek brought Abraham the bread and the wine, the two ingredients of the Lord's Supper. And thus in that beautiful Old Testament picture, he gives us a marvelous figure of the work of Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for the sins of the world. But then there's the king of evil. Saying to Abraham, will you let me have all the people and I'll let you have all the stuff. Now the problem with that is, is easily seen. Abraham had won all these things in battle. He had every right to keep every bit of it. Under the rules of war, they were the spoils of war. And he had every right to keep it all. What did the king of Sodom have? Nothing. What could he give Abraham? Nothing that he didn't already have. Anytime somebody sits down to deal with the devil, with our enemy, let's understand his first proposal is always going to be, you do this, and look what I have to give you. But if you look at what he has to give, it is either something that you already have in Jesus Christ, or it is a perversion of something that you already have in Christ. What he offers you will actually lead you away from what Jesus Christ and his glory has already had. The great preacher R.G. Lee had a great saying about that that I still love after all these years. <laughs> and I'll have to uh, 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 change it just a little bit for the modern mind because things have changed. He said when you sit down to deal with the devil, he'll offer you a lot of things. But he said, remember, all his pearls are cultured pearls. Now he said paste pearls, plastic pearls. He said all of his diamonds are lustrous plastic. Call that cubic zirconia. And then he said, if you eat his corn, he'll choke you with his cob. That's the devil. That's the devil. Anytime we sit down to deal with he's always offering. That's exactly what he did to Jesus. You do this, and I'll do this. You do this, and I'll give you this. Show him all the kings in the world. You just bow to me. I'll give it to you all. Jesus already had them. He couldn't give him anything he didn't already have. Then the significance of the battle is shown in the motive of the king. You see, Melchizedek came to bring Abraham into blessing. And Barah came to bring him into bondage. That's right there in verse 19. I didn't make it up. And he, that's Melchizedek, blessed him. That's Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies and your hand. And he, that's Abram, gave him Melchizedek tithe of all. Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. Blessed Abraham by bringing him a, a message. I call that a sermon. <laughs> now all the Bible recorded for us was the main points. It probably had a lot more to it than this but, uh, that, that all our preacher brethren here today could say amen to that. Yeah, just, just put down the main points. But what great points they were. He said, Abraham, 
You remember that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram, God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Whatever you have then, Abram, you remember God has given it to you. And you remember, Abraham, you remember that this God who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You didn't win this battle. God won the battle. Whatever you have, God has blessed you with. Whatever you've done, God has given you the ability to do. What an incredible sermon. No wonder Abraham said, hey, I'm going to pay a tithe right now. And he did. They passed the offering plate. <laughs> Maybe he didn't even wait for the offering plate. It kind of... You won't see an offering plate in that scripture anywhere, as a matter of fact. Just being reminded that God was the owner of all things. And reminded then that God had given him an incredible victory. Prompted Abram to do what tithing has always been. It is an act of worship to God. He gave him a tenth of all. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 8, we're told something about tithing. The Bible says here, that's in this world, mortal men receive tithes. Those guys that pass the offering plates, they go to your church. Here, mortal men then receive tithes. But now notice, that's not the important part. There, there where? Read the passage, Hebrews 7. You'll see he's talking about the presence of God. There in heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ receives them. We give tithes here on earth. We make our check out to our local church. Here men receive them. But there he's, he receives them. Over the years many people have tried to say that tithing was under the law. But in fact the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds us that tithing came about long before the law came about. And it specifically says that they are still received in heaven by Jesus Christ. By contrast then, the king of Sodom comes to Abraham offering him all the stuff. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom in verse 22, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. <laughs> you reckon Abraham would listen to that sermon? Uh, yeah, he did. He's gone out quoting, quoting what the preacher just told him. I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and I'll not take nothing, I'll take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. You see, he knew immediately that if he took this offer from the king of evil, it would put him forever in his debt. And then forevermore it would be told and retold and retold that it was the king of Sodom that made Abraham such a wealthy man. He said, I won't take a dime, Arkansas translation, of anything that is yours. Let's learn this morning how sneaky the king of evil is. It'd be real easy for us to get out of the realm of faith and into the realm of the flesh. Say, man, look at all this stuff. And now they say, man, you can just take it all. And I wasn't planning to, but man, maybe the Lord just is trying to bless me. And I, ought to, I mean, we can reason it around. Uh-oh. Abram didn't do a bit of that. 
He recognized exactly what the threat was, exactly what was going on, and he refused it. How many times in life do we end up saying, if I had just known, I didn't realize that there was a hidden price tag. I had no idea what it was going to cost me. I had no idea where I was going to wind up. If I would have known how it was going to go, I would have never made that decision. I would have never taken that. I would have never gone there. I would have never done that. But the great thing for us to see this morning is that Abraham saw it coming. And I'm convinced he saw it coming because of the time he had spent with the king of righteousness. He had listened to that message, that glorious time. There's something about spending time in worship with the king of righteousness that prepares us to recognize and overcome the king of evil. And so we see Abram in the spiritual victory. And we see that spiritual victory revealed in the choice that he made. He chose the king of righteousness and bowed before him in worship over the king of Salem to whom he gave nothing and from whom he received nothing. Now notice quickly the grace that Abraham gave. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I'll not take from the thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. The grace of God is put on display in a couple of ways. See, the king of Sodom said, give me the people. Let's make no mistake about it. Your enemy and mine, the devil, doesn't care about stuff. He cares about people. And he cares about them only because he wants to destroy them. That's all. But when he rejected the offer of the king of Sodom, Abram, in effect, set the people free. He didn't give them over to them. They were under Abram's control. He had fought for them. He had won them. They were his. He could have kept them all. But he didn't. He didn't give them to the king of Sodom either. He set them free. And that's what can happen in the lives of God's people when we bow to the right king. Is that God then can use us to bring freedom into the lives of other people who formerly were in bondage to the king of evil. The only reason that anybody would end up back under the control of the king of Sodom is if they chose to be so, and many of them did, including Lot and Lot's family. They didn't have to. They were given a way out. They were given that opportunity to choose freedom. They chose bondage. Because Abraham had served the right king, he was able then to give them that offer of grace. It was theirs to choose. 
second thing then that we see is that Abram lives in grace. The only thing that he asked for, he said, now, some of the people, they've already eaten some of the stuff, and of course, we can't take that back. But then he thought about the Amorite brothers, uh, Aner and Eshcol and Mamre. They weren't believers. They had joined in with Abram, and they had brought their men, and they had all fight. Abram could look at the spoils and say, I'll take none of it. And he could do that as a matter of conviction. He knew that it was wrong for him to take what the king was offering. But he also knew that the Amorite brothers had no such conviction. <laughs> they, they had made no such decision. And there's a couple of great lessons quickly that we can learn as God's people from this. Number one, you and I know what the Bible says. And what God says don't, to do, don't do, then we are obligated as His people. The Bible says don't do it, and therefore we know it's wrong for us to do it. God says to do it, and therefore we know it is the right thing to do. We respect the authority of Scripture, and we understand what the Bible says. We understand what it tells us to do and what not to do. But if we try to make unbelievers live by that rule they're going to resent it and maybe even hate us for it listen what unbelievers need is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ we need to share to them about that blood stained banner of the cross lift up Jesus because he promised us if I am lifted up will draw all men unto me we don't need as God's people to be trying to force an unbelieving world to live by the principles of Scripture. They don't understand them. They don't like it. They want no part of it. What do they need? They need the gospel. Abram had these men with him. They were unbelievers. They had not made any commitment. And so he said to the king of Sodom, I'm not going to take anything. That would be wrong for me. But these men... They made no such choice, no such commitment. Doesn't apply to them. They'll take their share, and they did. Another great thing then that we can learn from this is that it, sometimes it also applies to believers. You know, as believers, we have a lot of things that we live by that the Bible says not to do. The Bible says to do, or at least we try to live by them, amen? Well, I mean, we try. We really do. But then we have to understand, you know, there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't say anything about. And we have to make our own choices about that and our own decisions about that, and we do. We may decide that something is wrong for me, and we make that decision. You know, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong, but I believe it's wrong. And if you believe that way, then that's your conscience, and the Bible tells you don't sin against your own conscience, right? And so if you think it's wrong, then don't do it. But we don't have to try to force our convictions on everybody else because that's showing grace. Everybody might not share that same conviction. I, I listened to a story not long ago. It went back into a, a, another religion. I won't call the name. <clears throat> uh, but but this, it was a Christian religion. Uh, and, and they believed a, a lot of things was wrong, one of which was drinking coffee. And it was a very, very, this is many years ago, it was a very, very hotly debated topic. And there was a well-known preacher among them in their tradition that traveled around a lot, and, and he was pretty well-known to like to drink coffee. 
Well, he was sitting around a preacher's meeting, and one of those old preachers sitting at the table kind of leaned back, said, as only preachers can, well, I just don't understand how a Christian could drink coffee. And just that quick, that old preacher said, you bring me a cup and I'll show you. If you think it's wrong to drink coffee, hey, bring it all over to my house. I'll take care of it for you, okay? I mean, you know. Now, don't you take that too far. I'm, I'm not saying that that applies to things the Bible says are wrong. But there's a whole lot of things that we get convicted about and, and we decide are wrong for us, and that's fine. That's a good thing. But we don't necessarily have to force those convictions on others. So Abraham now, because he's living in victory, because he's bowed before the right king, he's living in grace. And he's able then to show that grace, that marvelous grace that sets men free to those who were formerly in bondage. You give them a chance so they didn't take it. And that shows us how we can show grace in our world, both to unbelievers and to our fellow believers in Christ. Abram's victory then in the spiritual battle is shown in two ways. It is shown in the choice that he made and, and the grace that he gave. Abram was long dead. Long, long dead. Before these events would play themselves out in the eternal purposes of God. He had no way of knowing what God was doing with Melchizedek. He just walked away after his meeting with the king of righteousness smiling because he had heard a great message and he had spent some time in worship. Worshiping then the king of righteousness equipped him to stand against the king of evil and recognize. It also equipped him to show grace in the world in which he lived. When we think of Sodom, we think of that cataclysmic time of judgment. But the Bible so carefully, so clearly put on display the grace of God. When God said to Abram, I'd spare the city if only ten righteous people could be found. For the sake of ten, God said. This terrible judgment would be stopped at ten. Of course, ten weren't found. But you know, we find out in this passage this morning that God had showed grace to the people of Sodom before. Enabling Abram to go out and win the victory. Bring them all back. God showed grace through Abraham as he refused, refused to give those people to the king of Sodom and gave them a choice. Had they left that day, they would have avoided the judgment of God, but by going back to the king of Sodom, they would fall under it. But God gave them a chance. You see, when we bow to the right king, brothers and sisters, God can use us as instruments of his grace. This world is headed for judgment. Terrible judgment. 
everyone in it, if they reject Jesus Christ, is headed for judgment. But it's judgment that they can avoid because God's grace has provided them with the chance of victory. God's grace has provided a means of escape through Jesus Christ. I don't know what brought you to this service today. don't know many of you visitors here today. I don't know why you chose this church. I don't know. But regardless, I can look over here and here and here and all in the balcony and I'll see all of you. Many of you have professed faith in Jesus Christ. You've been saved, baptized. You're a member of this church. Thank God today that you've been saved by His marvelous grace. And that you're saved forever because Jesus is our high priest forever. Maybe today you're here because you needed to hear this message. There is a King of kings and Lord of lords who loves you and comes to you to give eternal life. There is the rival king, the king of evil. He comes to you only to rob, to kill, and to destroy. You must choose which king you'll bow before. Stand with